Called what's your choice? It's called count to ten. It's called burn your bridges, start again. You should burn them every now and then, or you'll never. But now you grow. That's the killer. Is now you grow. All right, nothing's fair. It's all a plot. And tomorrow doesn't look too hot. You better look at what you. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radios. This week on Broadway for Sunday, April 29th, 2018. My name is James Marino and the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks, Broadway, Broadway Select, and many of the places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Also, uh, congratulations on uh, wrapping up uh, <laughs> the nominations for the Drama Desk. I know that's a ton of work for you. Sure, but great fun. Um, we certainly uh, <laughs> cross swords from time to time, but for the most part, we were pretty much in agreement on what was uh, to happen. I feel bad, of course, for the people who just missed the cut, yeah. but um, you know, we did have about 250, 60, 70, 80 shows, something like that, that we had to consider. So uh, people do get um, shunted as a result of that. So it's not that we loved other shows less, it's just that we did love other shows more. What could we do? So, Just generally speaking, I think it's very telling that there are uh, so many off-Broadway shows in the, no- yeah. uh, in the nominees, among the nominees this year. It's, it's very off-Broadway heavy, and I think that makes a general comment uh, uh, you know, in general about quality of what is being done off-Broadway these days. Oh, yeah, and the other part of that story is the fact that uh, where it comes to plays, um, there are going to be very few people who are going to be disappointed on Tuesday when the Tony nominations come out because there were so few plays this year. Right. Uh, that uh, <laughs> it's going to be a case where uh, if pretty much if you open and ran for a little while, you were noticed and uh, you'll you'll probably uh, do well come Tuesday. So um, you that's uh, half of your responsibilities in the award season. You have the Theater World Awards also coming up. Yeah, yeah, and I'm I'm also on the Lucille Hotel um panel oh, as well. So uh <laughs> yes, right, the third jewel of the Triple Crown. So uh yeah, so there's been a lot going on and uh the Theater World Awards uh, have been set for June 4th at uh, Circle in the Square. So we're going to be doing those and uh I'm looking forward to that. Um I have my Donald Trump joke ready already, so um we'll see what happens. <laughs> The other lush voice that you heard uh, speaking before was Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. And you can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. 
With us this morning, we have a very special guest. Emily Skinner is joining us by telephone. Broadway fans know Emily from shows such as Jekyll and Hyde, Sideshow, uh, James Joyce's The Dead, The Full Monty, Dinner at Eight, Billy Elliot the Musical, uh, Prince of Broadway, and upcoming in The Share Show. So, Emily, thanks for getting up on a Sunday morning and chatting with us. <laughs> I'm so happy to be with you guys, yeah. <laughs> oh, we're so happy you're you're happy and chipper because it, it is Sunday morning, and uh, <laughs> that's sometimes a, a challenge for Broadway performers. But uh, it is. It's true. We're we're nocturnal. You're right. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, people. You know, we we've actually had Broadway performers say, "Hey, can we schedule that for like one in the morning?" And <laughs> so, yeah, Broadway performers operate on their own time time frame. It's true. It's true. So uh, tell us about um, your involvement in Prince of Broadway. How did that come about? Oh, gosh. Um, well, you know, Hal had seen me in a, a, a show at Playwrights Horizons years and years ago, like back in, in 2002 or 2003, and he wrote me a letter yeah, afterwards wow. and said, you, you're great. We're going to work together one day. <laughs> And I remember when I got the letter, I was like, is this, is somebody pranking me? This can't sure, really sure, be sure, sure. a real thing. This yeah. is crazy. Um, but it was a real thing. Uh, and then years later, years and years later, I was doing um, uh, Billy Elliot, and I got a phone call from him out of the blue. And he said, I have I have a show, and I, I have a new show, and I want you to uh, be in it. And this was back in 2011. I believe, yeah, 2011. Um, and he and I went to the office, and he sort of talked me through what the show was, and um, and so this this show had been gestating for for quite a number of years in his in his head. Um, but it is interesting, sort of how it it sort of had evolved, and over the course of time, there were originally when he described it to me, there was a whole there were many many different numbers were in it then eventually ended up being in the show at all. And, and I was doing very different things in the show than I ultimately ended up doing. <laughs> so it, uh, it was interesting to be along remember, for the ride. Do you remember what some of those things were that uh, didn't make the cut? Oh, sure. Gosh. Um, there were, there were many things. There were things from, there was a section, a grind was in it um, originally. The show grind was in yeah. it. Um, there was a, the, the folly section was very different than ended up being in the show. Um, gosh, there was a whole, um, there was a, uh, Susan Stroman was, was choreographing, a um, a ballet in the second act that was going to be all, uh, the, the, all from music of, from Hal Flops. Wow. <laughs> wow. That didn't, that, that didn't, that didn't ultimately make it. Um, I was, I was going to be playing Sally Bowles. Uh-huh. <laughs> in this section, which is, you know, completely didn't end up happening. Um, yeah, it sort of was an interesting evolution of what actually ended up happening on stage, you know. All right. Now, um, you didn't become Sally Bowles, but you were a member of the Kit Kat band uh, in the show. Uh, were you actually playing an instrument? <laughs> were you just uh, No, we were just, we were just sort of miming instruments, I yeah. I see. Uh-huh. All right. Now, here you are with a situation where you're doing famous songs. I mean, especially playing Desiree. Uh, Is it a case where you listen to the other people and do something different or do you completely avoid the original cast albums of those shows? 
Well, you know, I grew up listening to the cast albums of those shows, um, so I certainly didn't revisit them now because they're sort of in me innately because <laughs> I, I just I grew up on them. Um, but I'm I'm not an impressionist, and mm-hmm. I, I certainly feel like I'm I'm smart enough not to not to go. And now I'm going to go do a lane stretch. That would be incredibly stupid, you know. Mm-hmm. Or I'm going to go do you know whatever. You, you can't you can't do that. That's that's kind of crazy. You just have to sort of look at the material and and look at what's in front of you. And Hal was really wonderful with all of us and didn't want us to do that. Didn't want anybody to do that. Um, that was one very of the clear. wonderful things, yeah. yeah one of the wonderful clear. things about working with a, a director who is who is of an age is that he's he's the first one to tell you, you know, I don't remember what I did originally. Ah. So so you know, show it to me freshly, please. Mm-hmm. Show it to me. Show it to me brand new. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. let's find Good. some new stuff. So that was that was a gift. Michael, uh, you were going to say something. Actually, I was going to ask the exact question. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> All right. So let me go on to this. Um, in the show, you sang Now You Know from Merrily We Roll Along, talking about the fact that um, y- you have to face reality at certain points in time. Can you tell me a Now You Know moment you had in show business that uh, suddenly the scales fell from your eyes and you realized that everything about it was not appealing? Well, that's every day of my life. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's, that's every day of my life. <laughs> All our lives. I mean, <laughs> yes, you know. <laughs> I can I can talk about that song a little, and I I think that it's um, for whatever reason that song has always been in the show. Ah. Many many number many many numbers came and went in the show, but that song was always in the show, and Hal always wanted it in the show. That song really speaks to Hal. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's sort of I think that's sort of profound, you know. That song, that song is the is the ultimate, you know, come to Jesus. When things are when things are crappy, you you got to look at the the, you know, look at them for, you know, it's the it's the ultimate bitch slap, you know. <laughs> but it's but it's but sometimes that's a good thing cuz you grow from it. You Actually, grow from I- it. I have a question about that that specific song also. It seemed to me that the arrangement uh, of that song was quite different from the original, whereas um, maybe most of the others in, in Prince of Broadway were not. Do, do you uh, want to tell us about that a little bit and why that evolved? Well, in Mer- in, in the context of, the sh- of Merrily, that it's from, Merrily Roll Along, it's a group number. Um, so it's right. many people sort of talking to to Franklin, sort of giving him that speech, sure. um, and it was reimagined for Prince of Broadway just as, as a solo number, um, and and Jason Robert Brown did that that rearrangement, which I think is quite terrific, um, and I think it was just it was a case of you know just going Prince of Broadway for for the most part is it was sort of many many solo numbers just because the cast was so small, you know, so wanting to have the song in but wanting to have it you know, showcased by a, a, a solo person. You talked about the gestation, and and I remember how long it was. And the show was, in fact, done, or at least a version of it, first in Tokyo and then in Osaka. Yeah. Uh, but mm-hmm. were you involved with either of those? I did. I did it. I was I was lucky enough to do it in Japan. Yeah. So I had a a, a the full experience <laughs> with this show in both of those cities. Yeah. 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 
Um, uh, Japanese it, audiences are famous for not really responding uh, while the show is going on. I don't know if that's changed, but uh, I've heard that and, and witnessed it myself when I was in Tokyo 30 years ago. But it, do they clap after every number? Do they do that now or do they still stay you know, silent? That was that was what we were told as well. But they actually they clapped every after every number. I mean, I think part of it, at least for Japanese audiences watching watching foreign shows to them, American shows, is that they're they're paying active attention. They're having to pay active attention to it to, to understand mm. it. Yeah, true. Um, so it's 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 not a it's not a distant thing. It's they're 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 leaning forward. Um, but they were clapped after every number um, and they boy they jumped to their feet at the end. They they really loved it. They were wonderful uh, the audiences f- for us over there. Yeah. By yeah. any chance, did you have a stage door Johnny, uh, a Japanese stage door Johnny, who who knew who you were and wanted an autograph? I can't believe I'm meeting the woman who was in James Joyce's The Dead. Anything like that? <laughs> no, strangely, not yeah. so much. Okay. Not so much. But the, we did have wonderful Japanese fans over there. Boy, they really love American musicals. Mm-hmm. They love American musicals. If I if I were a producer and I wanted to to gestate a a new Broadway musical. I would do it over there. I uh-huh. absolutely would. Wow, that's you know? great to hear. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad you brought up the whole Tokyo aspect of it because it was such an interesting, non-traditional talk about an out-of-town tryout. Tryout, yeah. Uh, you know, yes, uh, yes. And then, uh, as, as far away as you can possibly go. <laughs> <laughs> Just about. Just to about. try something out. Yeah. But I imagine uh, with the internet, people were still talking about it, uh, even while it was over there. You couldn't really work in silence or uh, out of the public eye. No, but I will say uh-huh. to that, it was because it was so far away. You mm-hmm. know, the New York Times couldn't come over and review it. They weren't mm-hmm. going <laughs> to do that. And there was much less of that. You know, now town, you go, you go out of town and immediately there are decisions made, opinions made. You can't escape anything. And, and it's so hard to, to, to workshop or evolve anything, you know, mm-hmm. there's these instant mm-hmm. judgments made by everyone on the Internet. So we did escape that a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, and had a, had a real process, which was nice. You were also, of course, in uh, a beloved musical that uh, certainly has a cult following, and you know the two words that are coming here, <laughs> side, side and show. Uh, the question becomes, I'm pretty sure that when I saw uh, a run-through, a type of backers audition, a, a, a year before you actually wound up at the same theater, there was a, a, a nice presentation at the Richard Rogers Theater about a year before it actually happened. And were you connected then um, as, as the Hilton twins? I know that it as time went on, you weren't. You were just pressed together. But um, were you ever connected during that uh, run through that I saw uh, a year before? No, 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 always... no. We never did that. Uh-huh. Yeah, we never did that. The Bobby Bobby Longbottom's idea by that show was that it was it was rough magic. It was mm-hmm. rough magic, and and that the audience would part of the great thing about that show was that the audience would was what we were doing as actresses that you believed it. Yeah, no. exactly. I thought you were connected. That's why I'm asking. Uh, no, we were not connected. <laughs> Our costumes were not sewn together. We were not magnetized, you know. <sighs> yeah. It, it would have been awfully hard to do that because we had, like, you know, 12 costume changes. So I don't know how you... Uh, 
Wow. I don't know how you sort of do that. Right, but, and also if you work, I always thought if you were connected and then if for some reason something happened where you started to move apart a little bit, it would be that's right. That's more right. hilarious to the audience. Well, it's funny because you can see we did, the, we did the Macy's Day Parade and the day that we did it, it was so windy, we got blown apart. Wow. <laughs> blown and you can see it on the... <laughs> yeah, and you can see it on the like you know YouTube videos. People occasionally send me. I'm like, eh, yes. And here's the moment the wind blew us apart. <laughs> okay, now come December, we're going to see you in the Share Show, and uh, you're playing Georgia Holt. Tell us who that is. Georgia Holt is Share's mother. <laughs> oh, I see. Share's mother. Yes. Yeah. Really, really interesting woman. Um, married eight times. Times married eight, married eight times. Yeah, she was a she was a singer and an and an actress um, who came came from nothing, came from uh, um, uh, very very humble beginnings, and and came to Hollywood and did a lot of of TV shows in the fifties. Um, really? And uh, yeah, yeah. You look her up. She's a really fascinating, fascinating person, and a and a really strong and and terrific mother. Um, so yeah, I'm very honored. <laughs> eight, eight times. One of them had to be yeah. to Alan, Alan J. Lerner, who was married eight times. <laughs> <laughs> well, very wow. shades of Elizabeth, Elizabeth Taylor, you know. Yeah, right. Sure. Isn't that something? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think she says she said at some point, somebody told me that she actually said, you know, I married everybody I ever slept with. Ah, well, you know, eight isn't so bad then for a lifetime, if that's the case. Well, uh, sure, absolutely. You absolutely. can hold her head up high. Yeah, so that's good. right. I think so. <laughs> I think it's going to be very interesting for us all to see how uh, how your character and, and Sonny Bono and uh, all the other people in Cher's life fit into the story. And also, this is, if I understand correctly, this is another show where we're going to have three people uh, playing the the lead uh, character, as happens in in a different way, I guess, in Summer, the Donna Summer musical. Yeah, yeah. I think it's. I actually think it's a very, very wonderful idea. Um, uh, it also it takes the onus off of one particular person to, sure, you know, to to not only to carry the show, but to then have the the audience constantly, you know, comparing in their head. Oh, this person really likes Cher, and you know, um, it's very smart. And and um, Mark Ellis, who who wrote the book, um, has done such a smart a smart thing about. Um, framing it in a way that's that it's it's not told necessarily in a linear fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little bit meta. Um, it's it's sort of smart and wonderful. And uh, the the three women who play Cher are spectacular, spectacularly good. Um, I think people are going to be just knocked out. Great. So let's talk about uh, the Prince Prince of Broadway uh, cast recording that's just been released. It's 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 nine months or so after the closing of the show uh uh you know did did you guys record it during the run of the show right after the run of the show or more recently or when did yeah happen? we recorded it the, like the day after we closed we recorded it <laughs> yeah so i i'm i'm very glad it got recorded um so often musicals um, come and go, and if they if they don't get recorded, they don't they don't. It's it's almost as if they didn't really exist, and they don't they don't really have a a life for the the future. I, I mean, I, I can speak to the fact that I, I feel like the reason Sideshow 
has a has a continued presence in the world is because we did that cast album. We had a very short run for that show. I think we ran three months. You know, like Prince of Broadway, had a very short run. But off the fact that that we made that cast album, that and people ended up finding it. Um, it's it's sort of a weird legacy has continued. In in the old days, um, one used to record the cast album uh, the Sunday after the show had opened. If indeed, if you had recorded the cast album right after you had opened, would your interpretation of the songs, your delivery of the songs have been markedly different? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I feel like my my uh, my evolution of, of those particular songs were, were was really sort of evolved in and when when we when we were in Tokyo. Mm-hmm. I feel like it was over over my course of being in in Japan because we had we had a a lengthy run of that show in in Tokyo. Um, and I sort of it sort of evolved for there. So by the time we got to New York, I I sort of was I felt like I had a sort of definitive take on on what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Peter yeah. can probably answer this if Emily can. Wasn't the it was the Merrily Reroll Along original cast album? Was that also the day after the closing? Yeah, yeah, yeah I thought so. So <laughs> amazing. Mm, yeah. So uh, the Prince of Broadway recording is out uh, on Ghostlight Records, and uh, it's officially been released on April twentieth, and it's available everywhere that you want to get. Emily, thank you so much for joining us on Broadway Radio and talking about uh, you know your experiences. We really appreciate you coming on. Oh, you're so welcome, and and I hope everybody will go and, and find the Prince of Broadway cast album because it's a it's a good listen. I think sure is, sure <laughs> is. Yes. Sing a copy of life just to keep in touch. The ones who follow the rules and meet themselves at the schools to busy to know that they're fools. Are they a Review section. The three of us have gotten the opportunity to see Summer, the Donna Summer musical. Peter, why don't you get us started on that? Well, uh, I'm not a, a fan of uh, this type of music, so I, if you showed me two pictures of uh, two women and said which one is Donna Summer, I wouldn't know. So uh, I came to this completely ignorant. I, I did, of course, hear some of the songs here and there. Um, you can't go into restaurants and not hear um, She Works Hard for the Money and songs like that. So um, the thing was that uh, this show got really um, pretty bad reviews, and uh, maybe that's why I went in with uh, super low expectations and I wasn't um, nearly as appalled as so many of our brother wizards were uh, who review. Um, frankly, what really overwhelmed me was LaShawn's performance. I thought she was sensational beyond belief. So LaShawn's really grabs this show. She runs with it. She's riveting and she acts really as if she's in a masterpiece which is terrific she's not the only donna summer they do decide to have uh, three donna summers one is played by an actress with a strange name of storm lever or lever um which is kind of interesting because i do believe lever brothers uh sponsored the secret storm a soap opera of many years ago but i digress anyway she's called duckling donner because she's the uh, young one and then uh there's disco donner who's played by ariana debose and then we get lachance as diva donner um and um 
it's not quite split um, in equal pieces. And um, frankly, that's a good idea because LaShawn's is so riveting. And I was delighted to see her act in such a forceful manner. Not that she hasn't in the past, but, you know, suddenly it's been 27 years since uh, Once in this Island when she really uh, start, got our attention. And um, she's tremendously at home on stage and she makes uh, Summer really worth watching. There are some ironies in this, first off. Uh, this uh, at one point we learned that Donna Summer appeared in Hair in Munich, which brought no pleasure to her very religious parents. I mean, of all shows, Hair. So um, she sang uh, White Boys from Hair, and uh, there's a lyric, beautiful as girls. Well, in fact, the people who are backing her up are girls, well, women, actually, but, I mean, the strange thing about this show is that there's a female chorus, and considering the fact that I've been told that Donna Summer really appealed to the gay men, um, it it was an odd decision not to have uh, gay men on the scene, um, especially at the end of the show where there's this big disco number, and um, it's supposed to replicate what was going on at the time, and since she really really was a favorite of gay men. Um, it's surprising that uh, the director, Des Mackinoff, said, you know, we're going to have an all-female chorus. So we're going to dress like men. So the other thing, though, of course, I've been told that uh, there was a lot of controversy when she made the real Donna Summer made her statement about God made Adam and Steve, uh, Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. So, um, huh, uh, this is really pussyfooted around quite a bit. And um, it, uh, the explanation that Donna Summer's character gives in this show sort of reminded me of Kevin Spacey's quasi-apology um, for um, his uh, behavior with Adam Rapp. It, it seemed to me uh, so evasive. And, you know, if, if there was such a thing as a bullseye um, in, in this situation, uh, she was in the uh, extreme uh, end of the circle uh, in the 10 spot rather than the 100 spots. So so those, those things uh, were a little strange to me. But I think it has to do with the fact that I went in with super low expectations. I don't expect much from shows dealing with celebrities and their lives and their highs and their lows. Uh, this is a genre. I'm used to it now. I saw her on your feet, etc. I'll see the Cher show come uh, December. So I know what these shows are like. It's not my idea of a Broadway musical. Um, you, you can say, well, wait a minute. There was that musical about Fanny Bryce. You know, that was a showbiz uh, biography, too. Yeah, I liked Funny Girl better than these shows, I have to say. And I think the scores are better, too. And, of course, it's an original score in Funny Girl. And we don't get original scores in these shows anymore. But this is the type of show that appeals to baby boomers who love to um, wallow in the style and relive their youth. And so um, there may very well be an audience for the show. I think summer could last past summer and maybe even longer. All right, Michael, what did you think? Well, I'm glad you brought up, uh, Peter, uh, lower expectations because that's what I was thinking a lot uh, in my reaction to this show. I, I, I kind of feel in general that lately I um, haven't been maybe as harsh as I should have been on some shows uh, for the specific reason that I, I kind of feel like the bar has been lowered um, significantly uh, over the years. And I'm, I'm not sure exactly where it it stands right now. But for summer, I would say that if you drilled a tunnel two miles yeah. below the earth and then set up a bar in it, I don't think it would reach that bar. I I. Uh, I guess we disagree on that. I think this is appallingly bad, especially I'm, the book by Coleman Domingo, Robert Carey, and Des Mackinoff. That's how it's credited. I um, 
think that this show is vastly inferior to uh, at least two other bio musicals, Beautiful, the Carol King musical, and On Your Feet. Um, I think that, and and uh, I, I was making the point when I was speaking to to a friend that uh, arguably Carol King's life is far less interesting uh, than Donna Summers because in Donna Summers' life there's. Uh, well, first of all, there's this this major conflict between her uh, her being such a religious person person and the the extreme sexuality of some of her songs, and that is uh, dealt with here a little bit, but really not to the extent. Um, I think that there are unbelievable low points in this show uh, in, in, in terms of the storytelling. One comes when uh, Donna is assaulted uh, to the uh, to the tune of No More Tears, Enough is Enough. And uh, the, the treatment of her uh, of her cancer diagnosis is also very ineptly handled. And the whole thing, uh, I, we do agree, Peter, on the, the, the way that the Adam and Steve thing is, is handled. It, it's uh, kind of set up as as a big moment towards the end of the show. But then uh, it's over in. It's kind of the discussion of it is over in about a minute, and then we move on to something else. I, um, I, ha- there is no greater fan of Lachance in the world than I, and I, I do think she's wonderful. But to me, she was not the standout here, um, partly because uh, her singing style is so different from Donna Summer, and I, I just, uh, I, I didn't. I, I was surprised when I heard the casting originally, and I, and uh, I thought that that was uh, sort of a disconnect. But to me, the, uh, the the real standout was Ariana DeBose, who was Disco Donna. She, I think, she really came into her own and really carried uh, carried the show. I, um, especially the the musical numbers. Uh, but another point to make here is that. They're 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 really great songs, but I think arguably most of these songs have even less story content than than the songs in uh, some of the other bio musicals and jukebox musicals because these were you know primarily dance hits. Uh, I guess maybe uh, she works hard for the money would be an exception, but. Uh, the, the songs were so ineptly set up that I, I couldn't even enjoy most of them. And even though there was some very enjoyable choreography by Sergio Trujillo, um, I do not understand the uh, the concept of having so many of the male characters, uh, including Giorgio Moroder and David Geffen, played by women, uh, especially since some of the <laughs> the uh, the male characters were played by men, including um Ken Robinson, who appears as Donna's father, uh, among other characters, and Jared Zerilli and Aaron Crone, uh, who appear as uh, as um, uh, other men in her life. Uh, I, I'm not I'm not sure what um, on what basis uh, it was decided that that women would play certain of the male characters. But for me, the actual uh, the concept of the show uh, that it's a concert of a lifetime given by, by Donna Summer, I guess towards the end of her career, um, and the actual dialogue was was just just appallingly bad. And so I think this is really one of the worst things I've ever seen. Wow, on Broadway, <laughs> yeah. Wow, 
Uh, so I, th- I think I fall more in the line with Peter that I-, I expected to go see something that had been ravaged by the, um, reviewers and I, I had a, I had a pretty good time and I learned new things about Donna that I didn't know. Uh, granted, I, I have a, uh, passing knowledge of her music and I recognize the songs, but I really don't know Donna, the, uh, her story. And I thought that that was that was interesting. I agree with uh, Michael that that the book went for some. <laughs> it took the easy route, went for easy laughs, and went for cheap laughs, or things like that, or did not really tackle uh, issues head on. But um, overall, uh, you know, maybe it was just that the, the word of mouth was so bad that uh, I came out of it and I was like, well, it was a hundred minutes, no intermission. And, <laughs> and you know, it's not going to change my world, but I, it was good to hear some of these songs again. And the audience, I was talking with somebody last night about this, that people that are going to, to the show are self-selecting. They're going because they are fans of the Donna Summer music and maybe they're not looking for, for angels in America, maybe they're just looking not. for yeah, they're, right. Yeah, they're just looking for, to hear the songs, and I really think that the cast was unbelievably talented. I mean, you, you've talked about Storm Lever, and you've talked about Ariana Debose, and you've talked about Lashans. I mean, these are people at the top of uh, of the talent pool, uh, and, and I really thought it was great. Uh, I I can't really uh, address the issue that. They don't sing in the style of Donna Summer because I, you know, I, I'm not really a scholar of that. So, uh, but it sounded to me like they were on the mark. But I, again, I don't pretend to know Donna Summer's work inside and out. So uh, maybe there and, is something to be said. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and one could argue that they, they shouldn't be aping her anyway. I, I just, yeah. that, that was just my reaction to. And uh, uh, yeah, I, I just think that uh, I un- understand everything you're saying. I think this because this is a true story of a yeah. woman who had a, a really, really fascinating and dramatic life. Uh, uh, I would think that the fans would deser- ha- had deserved a better treatment of it. Yeah. Uh, that's just my opinion. I understand. No, I absolutely yeah. understand that. Uh, uh, I have either one of you mentioned the, uh, that, uh, her, her move to Germany was based upon getting cast in hair. <laughs> uh, Peter mentioned that she was in a yeah. production of hair. I believe it was in Munich. Is that right? Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, there's our, our, our thin tie back to Broadway. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, all right. Well, like, uh it's doing really well it's gotten good business i think it will probably be around for a little while uh and so that is summer the donna summer musical over at the lunt fontan uh the three of us got over to the uh re (laughs) redesigned lyric theater uh where we saw Harry Potter and the Cursed Childs parts one and two. Uh, and uh, we, let me start off by saying that uh, um, I have 
Uh, I worked for Scholastic for uh, a bit of time in my life when uh, the Harry Potter books came out. And so I have a really deep knowledge of Harry Potter. And uh, I really enjoyed this show. Um, but my wife does not have a, a deep knowledge of Harry Potter. Uh-huh. And mm-hmm. uh, she had read one of the books and not really seen the movies. Uh, and and she was... Uh, she didn't get all the internal references and things like that. So if you are somebody that is interested in going to the Harry Potter show and you're not a big fan, uh, the Harry Potter folks have put out these sort of uh, summaries or cheat sheets or you can go to Wikipedia and read up on, you know, do 10 or 15 minutes to get uh, at least some of the references into your your head there so that you're not totally lost. I don't think you have to – know all the all the Harry Potter uh, information and lore in order to understand this show but it certainly helps you uh helps you get over the hump of what is going on at stage so the other aspect of it is is that uh people have uh talked about um bringing of the british cast to america and was that absolutely necessary i thought that the cast was really amazing um and that, uh, but bringing them over, I'm not sure that it was 100% necessary. This is uh, an epic show in two parts. Uh, the first, I think the first part's an hour, th- uh, two hours 30, and the second part's two hours 40 or something like that. You have to buy the tickets together um, and see them uh, uh, in succession. I think that that's the only way that they're selling it right now. And, uh, it um it can be done in an afternoon or uh, matinee in an evening or over two days uh and we have uh a number of people that i think are going to get some uh tony nominations uh come this tuesday morning uh when the tony nominations are announced um i there's a a guy named anthony boyle boyle excuse me who plays uh, scorpius malfoy um and I think that he, um, I think that he is destined for some really big things. He really is one of the standouts of the show. Uh, the way in which they've reinterpreted uh, the, uh, Harry Potter and presented it on the stage in magic, in some things that I, some things that they did, I said, "Oh, I know how they did that." And other things that they did on stage, I went. I have no idea how they did that. And uh, it was a very interesting and cool thing. They are using technology up, down, and sideways to uh, tell this story. And I don't know. I'm interested to hear if uh, either one of you felt that they they used some sort of special effect and it really was just didn't move the story forward and it was just uh, – it was it was indulgent of them to do it, but I don't, I don't know if they really did that. And some of the amazing things that they did using the entire theatrical space uh, throughout the thing. Uh, I think the three of us might be a little bit obsequious in talking about this because they <laughs> repeatedly asked us not to spill the beans or uh, or keep the secret. Hashtag keep the secret as as they're. Uh, have reminded us a number of times. Did you guys get those emails and uh, get reminded while at the theater to keep the secret? Uh, yes. Well, we're doing our reporting on this. 
but I think that this Harry Potter is going to break is going to break the curse of the Lyric Theater. And I think <laughs> that this Harry Potter is going to be there for a very, very long time. So One uh, of the few things I ever felt was that uh, Life with Father would never have its record broken as Broadway's longest <laughs> Eight years. Now, it all depends how you're going to look at it, and that is the fact that uh, since it's in two parts, should we judge this as one play or two plays? And if it's two plays, well, then you only get four performances a week, and it will take right, six, right. 16 years to break Life with Father's record. But, but 16 years doesn't seem out of the question. I mean, it is possible that Harry Potter will fall out of vogue in 16 years. Um, everything passes, um, and... Um, so we may not see it break life with father's record if they do four performances uh, as the, the uh, line of demarcation. But if they do eight, um, it certainly seems that eight years is not out of the question for this. Um, I am uh, totally illiterate where it comes to uh, Harry Potter. There are those who will say I'm totally illiterate on a lot of things, but especially Harry <laughs> Potter. And so I, I purposely did not read up on anything. I wanted to go in cold. I wanted to see what I would think. Um, and to be frank, one of my least favorite things that happens in theater happened almost immediately. And that is the mm. fact that the director placed the action far, 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 far upstage while they were having their first conversation about what was going on here. And the lyric is a big theater beautifully uh, <laughs> reconfigured and redesigned. It seemed as if there was a real intention of making this look like a London theater. There's a lot of wood. There's a lot of wallpaper. And it, it reminded me of a lot of London theaters, although much bigger than the London theaters it seemed to emulate. But anyway, in a big house like this, um, which usually has musicals in it, um, is this, in fact, the first non-musical in it? I'm, I'm really not sure, but I think it is. And... Yeah, it, it it plays like a musical. There's one point where a character talks about how growing up is so difficult and you're waiting for him to break into song. But the fact that it was placed so far upstage, I thought was a, a tremendous mistake for those of us, and there may be two or three more like me and that's it, who, who don't know the Harry Potter stories. Because if you get lost early on, you're going to be lost for a long, long time. Mm. Um, I, I'll contrast this. We're not going to talk about the Iceman comment today because you two guys haven't seen it yet. But what I loved about the Iceman man cometh is that George Wolf has put everybody right at the lip of the stage. Um, and because it's a four-hour show, you need that immediacy to keep you um, involved. And the fact is, of course, Harry Potter's even longer. And so I think it can lose those people who don't know the books or the movies. Now, as I say, there are quite few of those. So for the rest of the people. But, but I will say this. For about an hour in the first show, um, it seemed the audience wasn't reacting at all. At all, at all, at all. And um, I brought uh, a friend who uh, was almost saying, like, only three more shopping days until you take me to see it. And um, he was really uh, so intent, and he went in there with the highest of hopes and intermission. He said, I'm enjoying it, you know, which is not quite the same thing as, ah, ah, you know. Yes, I literally emitted a wow out loud when I saw one of the effects um, that um, makes no sense to me how it could be achieved, but it was achieved. And um, so that much is in place. I, I really thought there was going to be much more to the set because it's a lot of door panels sliding on and off um, because we heard it cost so much money. 
and of course there has been that discussion well the money really includes the renovation of the theater perhaps it does um, I don't know but but um, it, it didn't look as expensive as I expected it to be and I guess most of the money went into the special effects which are extra special so and um, even though I didn't know anybody um, in terms of characters I certainly was impressed by Noma Dumans Wesley who plays uh, Hermione uh, magnificently well and I agree with um, James that Anthony Boyle is terrific as Scorpius, but they're all good. And uh, we're talking about 16, 16 people making their Broadway debuts, uh, which is playing hell with my theater world awards because we give out for debuts. And yeah, you know, so we'd have a much easier time checking off that ballot if indeed uh, we had fewer people on it. But we'll welcome Harry Potter because um, some of the effects really do make it worthwhile. And um, I'm, I'm really interested to hear as time goes on what people who know chapter and verse of these books feel. I will say that uh, one person I know who's on a committee, I won't be more specific because I'm not supposed to be, um, said she knows the uh, books inside out. And she was a little disappointed and felt that a lot of things didn't quite make sense and really didn't jive with uh, what the books set up, which may or may not be true. But that was her take on on it. So, um, Michael, what do you think? Well, uh, one reason I'm glad that they that they insist we keep the secrets is that that uh, kind of relieves responsibility of trying to explain um, the whole time travel aspect <laughs> of the show, uh, because time travel, uh, I, I think it's fair to say that much and not say any more, plays a plays a huge part uh, in this story, I am almost as illiterate as Peter, as I, I think I mentioned in the past. I saw the first film of Harry Potter and uh, only saw it once when it came out. So uh, uh, for all intents and purposes, I am I'm almost a complete neophyte. Uh, I think that it does help tremendously uh, the more you know about the books and the movies I, I had I did some uh, some research beforehand. And there is a very helpful um, uh, synopsis in the in the program, which, by the way, is a show bill, not a play bill, uh, because uh, this is the Ambassador Theater Group. Uh, and uh, it's uh, it's done. The synopsis is done year by year, uh, year one at Hogwarts, year two, uh, et cetera, up through year seven. And then there's also a glossary. Um, if so, if you are. Um, uh, a neophyte, you should definitely read that in addition to whatever else you, you, however else you try to bone up beforehand. Um, and that will help greatly, but it's still not the same as, as being, uh, having intimate knowledge of the characters and, and, and the plot points. There were many times, uh, several times when characters would appear on stage and the audience would cheer or gasp because they immediately recognize the character based on, uh, how they're described in the books and or portrayed in the films. Uh, but I, uh, so I had to, in in most cases, turn to uh, my my expert friend and say, "Who's that? Who's that?" <laughs> he would tell me. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I completely agree about Anthony Boyle. I think he is a a, 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 a superb standout. Um, I I'm concerned about his voice. Um, he did a lot of screaming uh, when I when I saw it and it was perfectly in service of the, of the character screaming and shouting, but uh, I, I'm a little concerned about that. I hope that doesn't become an issue for him. Sam Clement is also great as Albus Potter. They, they have, uh, I suppose the, the two largest roles in the show. And it was, um, 
I really enjoyed seeing Jamie Parker as Harry Potter uh, because he uh, is uh, 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 was in the cast of History Boys. Uh, so it was nice to kind of see him uh, in an adult role because this is uh, much of the theme of Harry Potter. It has to do with um, parent-child relationships. In fact, I thought um, I thought the second part, part two, was um, really quite. Uh, heavy-handed in that regard. I, I thought it, it went a little too far in exploring and and re-exploring uh, all that that situation, um, uh, the parent-child uh, dynamic. So I uh, act. Uh, the part part one was um, in terms of the uh, the 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 movement and the, the the movement of the story and the effects and everything was 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 really quite something uh, and there are many moments in part two also do you do we suppose speaking of tony nominations um uh i do do we think there'll be a special award to jamie harrison for illusions and magic yeah yeah i do i do um, um for me another flaw was the fact that if you can travel in time why aren't you going back to see the original follies <laughs> no, but seriously. Um, oh, oh. Seriously, time travel involves so many paradoxes, uh, and they they maybe mentioned a few of them in this show. But I I think once you start to think about it, the paradoxes are so overwhelming that uh, it can drive you crazy. I think uh, the 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 concept of time travel is is fascinating, but when you get down to the nuts and bolts of it, it just uh, it it just it just can make you nuts because there are so many paradoxes as to what what changes and what doesn't change if someone goes back in time and and alters events. So there was a, a number of things I wanted to uh, have you guys weigh in on. First of all, is the soundtrack, and I do not say cast recording. I say no, no, soundtrack. I don't, okay. Yeah, there is a deep one. I think that this could be the highest-selling soundtrack of a Broadway, uh, uh, a Broadway show. Uh, yeah, I, it, I, it probably will do better than Contact, right? Uh, go on. <laughs> uh, so um, what was your thoughts on that? And uh, I did not ask the press reps. I meant to, and I didn't do this. I, it all sounded pre-recorded to me. Is that? Do you think that that's true? It sounded pre-recorded to me too. I'm not uh, an audiophile, so I really can't say for sure. But it did sound pre-recorded to me. Well, are you asking? Are you asking if there's an orchestra? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm looking here, and uh, I don't see one listed. So I, I assume that it ha- it must be. It, yeah, it sounded all pre-recorded, and I, and there was a, a lot of music and a lot of very very good music. I, I enjoyed it immensely, but I was surprised they got away with. Uh, not you know a pre-recorded pre-recorded uh music well but that opens up the whole question of i mean this theater ha- uh was you you know it, this is what its fourth or fifth name and it has been completely reconfigured i don't know what the what the uh arrangement was uh, before this in terms of uh musicians minimum uh and of course this is not a musical so i i don't know that would that would be an interesting thing to find out um, uh, and, uh, it's, it's hard to, you know, uh, this might, this might be a totally stupid statement, but I'll say it anyway. Um, 
I felt that the part two, the second day, uh, was better than the first day, which I guess sometimes you can say it's like the first act wasn't as good as the second act or something like that. But uh, the the second day I felt was uh, stronger. Also, the aspect of this is that uh, Peter brought up that his friend is a Potterphile that um, knows everything inside and out. It's it's important to note that this is sort of fan fiction based upon the stories that uh written by Jack Thorne um and kind of uh, had structure from J.K. Rowling the uh, a writer of the Harry Potter novels um but this was uh John Tiffany and Jack Thorne's work really not J.K. Rowling so it uh is going to be a little bit uh of a different voice than the original uh the the original uh, books that we that are internationally acclaimed. Um, there was well, problems. Michael. You said Michael. You said you didn't really like the second uh, half, and James, you said you did. What I noticed was, um, and I saw them both in one day on a Saturday, that the audience really responded much more to the second half um, with much more laughter. Now, this could have been that they went out and had a few drinks in between. Maybe that's the reason why. But they really <laughs> were, seemed to be more into the second act uh, at my performance than they were at the first act. Interesting. Well, I, I think what you said about the, the first part of the, the first part uh, not getting response, I think maybe that was because um, – there needed to be even in this case uh, quite a lot of exposition and setup of I was uh, who say was, that you know who was who in, in the in the in the present day since it it takes place uh, twenty well twenty years uh, after yeah. I guess the the events of the uh, you know the the previous events of the of the 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 most recent book and films yeah I think that the end of the first half. Uh, was the big uh shocking and they took basically the whole entire first half to set up everything and then the second half was knocking down all the pins uh and so maybe that was it and um the other aspect is that uh the Harry Potter books and the films if you look at them just from uh, a statistical standpoint, whether it be page count, word count, or length of the film, the films got the films and the books got longer and longer and longer as you go from book one to book seven, um, and then the film actually was in two, the last Harry Potter film was in two parts as well, just like mm. the play is in two parts, uh, and and it makes me wonder if. Uh, they will, uh, based upon what is seemingly the su- success of The Cursed Child, parts one and two, if we will see another Harry Potter play in five or ten years. Uh, I wonder. Mm. It's worth noting that, in, uh, uh, by the way, that the cast does not take a curtain call after part one. Yeah. That, that's yeah. how much of a, of a unit uh, these two plays are being seen and, as. And it's the they project uh, to be continued. Yes, so, you're right. <laughs> uh, so um, I think this is uh, a very interesting, different way of looking at a theatrical production. Do you agree with me? Disagree with me? Well, absolutely. No, I, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm, which nobody can deny. Yeah, and so uh, right now it seems like it's. Uh, 
it's playing to full houses and uh, a hard, another hard-to-get ticket on Broadway. So um, we will see what happens and how uh, the various uh, groups in the award season react to this play and uh, if the ticket buyers will... Uh, I, how will they... How will they showcase Harry Potter and the Cursed Childs Part 1 and 2 on the Tony Awards? Uh, will it just be commercials mm. in between? Or are they going to do a scene? Uh, it's really, Very really good hard point, to, James. Very good hard, point. Hard to move this magic from mm-hmm. the lyric to Radio City or mm-hmm. uh, and, and do it the way that they want to do it. And, um, and the rumor is, is that you know, people involved in the production have been sworn to secrecy if not you know fear of losing their jobs if they give away this <laughs> how things are done but yes um, all right so that wraps it up uh for our uh review section before we get on to trivia i want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadway radio there's a subscribe link that we each and every time we have a new episode of this week on broadway it'll be automatically downloaded to itunes or Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us that way. You can listen to us in iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, uh, anywhere that um, finer podcasts are shown. You can get us that way. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and me, for me, can be found at BroadwayRadio.com, as well as links to, like, Emily Skinner's website, The Prince of Broadway, at uh, Ghostlight Records, things like that. It'll all be found in our show notes at BroadwayRadio.com. So, Peter, do you have an answer for last week's trivia? Well, the question was, in terms of best musical Tony winners, what is interesting about the years 1958, 1963, 1976, 1981, 1990, and 2007? Um, I will say that uh, Martin Loder got it. Brigadude got it, and David Tremblay got it. But my favorite answer came from Steve Garvey, who said, each Tony-winning musical of those years beat out a musical that was or went on to become an Oscar-winning film. So his point was that uh, in 1958, the music band beat out West Side Story, which became a best picture. That a funny thing beat out Oliver, which became a best picture. A chorus line beat out Chicago, which became a best picture. Then he <laughs> he had to fudge himself a little because he mm-hmm. said 42nd Street beat out Woman of the Year, which won best screenplay. Uh, City of Angels beat out Grand Hotel, which was a best picture. And Spring Awakening beat out Mary Poppins, which had five Oscar wins, even though it didn't um, win Best Picture. Um, that's a convincing case. You know, it wasn't what I was going for or with the other three uh, people uh, guessed. What I was going for was the fact that in those years, the winner um, was uh, a show that didn't open in that year. So, for example, in 1958, the winner was The Music Man, which opened in 1957. In 63, Funny Thing was the winner, which opened in 62. Chorus Line, 76, but opened in 75. 81, 42nd Street, which opened in 80. 1990, City of Angels, which opened in 89. And 2007, Spring Awakening, which opened in 2006. So while most of the time, uh, just for the sake of uh, mentioning it, uh, for example, Hello, Dolly opened in 64 and won the 64, Tony. So that was the difference. That's what I was going for there. So this week, a Pulitzer Prize-winning musical, Now, how many are there, really? You know, so this shouldn't be so hard. A Pulitzer Prize-winning musical has two songs in a row where different automobiles are mentioned. The first of the two mentions a very high-end model, the second a far more plebeian vehicle. What's the show, the songs, and the automobiles? 
All right. If you know that, uh, email us at TriviaBroadwayRadio.com. We'll let you know if you were on the right track. So on behalf of Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Lately all her neighbors' cats have disappeared. Have to hand it to her, or what I call enterprise. Popping pussies into pies. Not into in my shop. Just the thought of it's enough to make you sick. And I'm telling you, the pussycats is quick. No denying times is hard to serve. Even harder than the worst part.